the reading starts at Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, we're in the city. And in the city, prospects are a big thing. There are sales prospects, investment prospects, dividends prospects, perhaps the prospect of a bonus. And then there are a number here who will have been doing GCSEs or A-levels recently or finishing university degrees. And then naturally, we're thinking about prospects, the prospects for further employment or education. Or maybe if you're a sports fan, you're thinking, what are the prospects of Man City winning the treble? Or what are England's prospects in the ashes? But the question we're thinking about this morning is, what are the prospects for the church in 2023? Now, I guess sitting in a fairly full building this morning, we might feel fairly positive about it. Um, But if we're statistics people, then we're always hearing those articles and seeing those figures of church decline. According to the Open Doors charity... There are 360 million Christians experiencing severe persecution or discrimination in the world today. And perhaps when we head home and head to work tomorrow morning or back into school, where we're conscious of the hostility that there is towards Jesus that's just in our culture around us. In fact, in the 4pm congregation a few weeks ago at their uh, evening guest event, the title was, Is Christianity Bad for the World? And they called it that because... They said, well, that's what our friends are saying. That's the question that's being asked. And I guess this kind of culture would have been the same for Matthew's first readers. They were living in a culture seeking to sightline Christianity, hostility from Jerusalem, hostility from Rome. And actually, we've seen it over the last seven weeks as we've been looking at Matthew chapters 14, 15, and 16. We see Jesus display the glory and the wonder of his kingdom. And then there's hostility. And there's unbelief, and there's Herod, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And so it could be possible just to get a bit discouraged about the prospects for the church. Or perhaps, if it's not so much discouragement, we might feel like we've got to come up with some kind of silver bullet for church growth, some kind of quick fix, maybe a gimmick, a movement, an impressive method. But this morning, Jesus wants us to be confident that the prospects for his church are always rock solid. And he wants us to have conviction about exactly how he's going to build it. 
So we're looking at these verses. They're right in the heart of our section. They come as the climax of three chapters in which Matthew's been showing us, on the one hand, the ugliness of unbelief, and then on the other hand, the wonder of Jesus and his kingdom. And in chapter 16, we've just been warned not to go after the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That is their teaching, which won't acknowledge Jesus as king. It's unbelief. And so now we see Jesus again. And here we see assurance that everything we've seen of Jesus and his kingdom is sure and secure. Jesus wants us to be confident that he will build his church. Nothing's going to stop it. And he wants us to have absolute clear conviction about how he's going to do it. And so there's two declarations this morning. These are the two memory verses you've been remembering. I like to think of them as the you tell me and the I tell you. So we had verse 15 16. Jesus said to them, but who do you say I am? This is the you tell me. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then verse 18 is the I tell you. Jesus answered, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we're going to look at these two declarations in turn. And the first is Peter's climactic confession. Jesus is the Christ. So through this section, identity has been a big issue. That's where it started. Chapter 13, Jesus' hometown are saying things like, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? And we've just been there in chapter 16. The Pharisees and the Sadducees refuse to acknowledge the signs that display who Jesus is. And so Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks the same question. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, Son of Man is a title, it's from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and it refers to God's appointed, eternal, global king. And so when Jesus asks the question, it's not like he's trying to hide his identity. He tells them the answer in the question. Because the big thing we're supposed to be seeing is the contrast between what the people are saying and then what the disciples say. And what the people say, well, it misses the mark. John the Baptist, Elijah, the Jeremiah. These are important prophets. And so actually to give an answer like that sounds initially pretty positive. But actually these are answers that fail to recognize the signs. They fall short. Jesus is just one of the prophets. It's the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's unbelief. And actually, this is so contemporary. I went out on Thursday into the Aviva Square just over there and decided, well, I'd ask people sitting in the sun, who do you say Jesus is? And so there were a range of answers. One person said, son of God. Lots of people reached for a kind of positive comment like this. So we had things like, he's a myth, but he does give hope. Or he's an, an anomaly, but he does bring some people together. He's an important figure for society, a valuable reference point for morality, a good ideal, a refreshing teacher. But all these answers, saying something positive, but keeping Jesus at arm's length, nothing more. The 21st century equivalent of John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah. It's still the leaven of the Pharisees. And so Jesus then turns to ask his disciples, verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And the reply is so striking in its contrast to just everything 
that the other voices are saying. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now when Jesus asked the question in verse 15, the you is plural, it's a question to them all, but just Peter replies, and it's just worth noting that here because there's a pattern throughout this whole section that Peter acts as a kind of representative disciple for the twelve who have been called out by Jesus as his witnesses. We might call him a lead disciple. And so what he does, well, it's representative of the whole group. And he answers Jesus, and he hits the bullseye. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells me he hits the bullseye because he says, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. Jesus is the Christ. This is actually the first time in the whole section that Jesus is called the Christ. And Christ is not a surname like Jesus Christ, it's a title. The Hebrew word is Messiah, and it means anointed one. And all the Old Testament expectation was that this Christ would come and he would rule as God's king over all the world, and he'd bring refuge to everyone who came to him and submitted to him. And so that's the picture of Daniel 7, the son of man. In 2 Samuel 7, King David is promised that one from his line will have a throne established forever. And he'll be called the Son of God. And in Psalm 2, we find God's anointed himself speaking. And he says, I'll tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So I used to work in IT, in the IT service industry. A thrilling place to work. And many of us will be in that perhaps. And there was this thing called follow the sun service desks. Follow the sun service desks. And the idea was that you'd have a team who would support whatever the application was. And you'd have one team in UK, one in India, one in Australia, one in the US. And so there would always be someone to help you where the sun was up. At least that was the theory. Well, the Old Testament expectation of the Christ is that he would rule in reality wherever the sun is up and wherever the night has fallen. And Peter and the disciples have seen Jesus confirming the kingdom. They've seen the signs of the times. And so Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' reply in verse 17, well, it's more than just kind of, yes, you got it right. It's loaded with significance at this confession. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And this language of blessed, it's the language of being right with God, being part of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed is the one who has the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And all through the gospel, his message has been repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And here Peter's showing us the right response. It's as if when Peter makes this confession, Jesus says, yes, you're in the kingdom. When we acknowledge Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, and surrender our lives to him, we're blessed. We come into the kingdom. And it might be this morning that you're investigating the claims of Jesus. Maybe you're here for the baptism, which we trust will happen another day. Well, the key question is, who do you say Jesus is? Because all those answers of verse 14 or the, the Aviva Square responses, they sound pretty positive. 
But they're the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's still unbelief. But the blessing of the kingdom of heaven is held out. And it's held out for all who acknowledge Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and come under his rule. But Jesus says more in verse 17, and it's really important. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Because this shows us that Peter's climactic confession is not a kind of lucky guess. It's not because he's especially clever. It's not even because he's from the right family. Simon Bar-Jonah means he's son of a man called Jonah or John. And Jesus says, well, it wasn't even your dad who told you this. It was my father in heaven who revealed this to you. God has shown Peter this truth. And so in the midst of all these wrong verdicts about Jesus, here we have Peter's verdict, and it's emphatically God's verdict. If you like, what Peter says about Jesus is what God says about Jesus. Or to put it another way, Peter has declared God's authoritative word about Jesus. And it's because of this climactic confession, this you tell me moment, that Jesus can make this definitive declaration that follows, that I tell you. Peter's climactic confession leads to our second point, Jesus' definitive declaration. Verse 18, and I tell you, says Jesus, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the word for church is the Greek word ecclesia. It simply means gathering or assembly, and it can mean any kind of gathering. So it could be your assembly at school. It could be a regional political assembly. It could be one of those protest gatherings at Parliament Square. In Acts chapter 19, it's even used to describe a mob who are rioting in the city. And it's worth saying that this means that church is not actually the building. It's the gathering of people. So this stone structure we're in is not itself a church. What this is, is a useful and relatively elaborate room for the church to gather in. In fact, in his book, God's New Community, this book here, Graham Bynan tells a story of one of his sons pointing and saying, look, daddy, people are going into church. And his wife saying very wisely, actually, the church is going into a building. And so for Jesus to be building his church, it's for Jesus to be gathering his people. And that's the whole Bible story, is this story from Genesis to Revelation of God gathering a people to dwell with and to bless. It's the picture we've been seeing over the weeks in chapters 14 and 15 as Jesus confirms his kingdom. And through the Old Testament, the focal point of God's gathering, well, it's a rock, a mountain, When God rescued his people from Egypt and slavery, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and there he spoke his word to them, made them his people. In Numbers, we read of Israel gathering, we might say churching, at a rock. And it's the same rock. It's called Horeb or Sinai. And so when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, well, it's a massive moment of reassurance and expectation. So there may be hostility to Jesus' kingdom, There'll be leaven to watch out for, but God's plan's totally on track. Because here is Jesus the Christ, declaring the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament picture was pointing to. But the rock is not Horeb. The rock on which the church will be built, remarkably, seems to be Peter. And that maybe seem a bit of a surprise. We might be asking, well, well, in what sense is Peter 
the rock on which Jesus will build his church. And we're going to have to concentrate for just a few minutes here because verse 18 is a verse that sparked a fair bit of discussion and debate over the centuries. But there's a bit of a play on words here. The word for rock is Petra. And Jesus has renamed Simon Bar-Jonah and called him Peter or Petros. It sounds like rock. It's as if to say, you're the rock, you're called rock, and on this rock, I'll build my church. And that thinking has led Roman Catholic theologians to use this verse to justify the existence of the Pope and to argue that Peter's the infallible rock and his authority is passed down in succession from Pope to Pope to Pope to Pope until the current day. But actually, when we look at these verses, we see there's nothing in here at all about Peter's succession or his infallibility or his exclusive authority. Because what we're seeing here is Jesus' declaration in verse 18, it follows on from what Peter has just said in verse 16. See, Peter is the one who's just spoken God's authoritative word about Jesus. And here it's as if Jesus says, yes, that's right. Peter, you've got the true word about me. And insofar as you speak that true word about me, you are the rock on which I build my church. So Peter is the rock insofar as he speaks the word of truth about Jesus. And ultimately, that word of truth, well, it points to Jesus, doesn't it? Points to Jesus, the true rock. That's actually how Peter understands it himself. In his first letter in 1 Peter, he says, we're to come to Jesus, the living stone. He doesn't say, come to me, but he declares a word that points to Jesus. Peter's word, the truth about Jesus, that's the rock on which the church is built. And Peter's word is the, author- is the apostle's word. So we've seen Peter's the lead disciple. Well, in God's salvation plan, he does seem to have this lead role. And so when we look at the book of Acts, we find Peter's the first one proclaiming at Pentecost that Jesus is the Christ and calling people to repent And Peter's the first one to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. But then we see all the apostles doing it, proclaiming the word of Jesus around the world. And then other disciples going out from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth as Jesus builds his church, built on the word of the apostles. And this means that Jesus' church, well, it's not a denomination or an institution per se. It's not the Church of England, if you like, is not in itself the church. The reality is that there are gatherings of Jesus' church, people assembled around this word about him, and they just happen to use the structures and the connections of a denomination. In fact, within that same denomination, there are other gatherings which have rejected or corrupted the apostles' words. They may be using the structures too, but they're not Jesus' church. Denominations can lose their way, but where people are gathering around the word about Jesus in submission to his wonderful rule, there's the church, and the church continues to grow. And so it might be in a building like this, it might be in a school hall, it might be secretly in a home, it might be in huts in a jungle in northern Cambodia like Joel, or in barns, or in battlefields, or in open fields where Jesus' people gather around the apostolic word, there's the church. So what are the prospects for the church in 2023? Well, they're rock solid, because Jesus is the Christ, and the apostolic word is established, and he's going to build his church, and nothing can stop it. 
Look again at the end of verse 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the language of prevail, that's the language of like a long-standing waged battle. Think of long-term conflicts around the world today. We ask the question, who will prevail? Well, cultures may try to marginalize Jesus. Governments may try to persecute Christians. War may cause turmoil and chaos. Denominations may lose their way. Satan will launch his assaults. But it won't stop Jesus gathering his church. Because he's the Christ. The apostolic witness is confirmed. The rock of their word is established. And even the gates of hell, death itself, won't stop Jesus gathering. Remember the banquet scenes, the 4,000, the 5,000? They're pictures of the final victory banquet that King Jesus will serve for his people. And we're told in Isaiah that at that banquet he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And knowing this great news, well, there's a conviction Jesus wants us to be sure of. What is the task for his disciples? Well, verse 19, it's the same task in the first century as it is in the 21st century. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The big image is keys. This is what Amy was showing us earlier in the children's talk. And keys, as we saw, are about access. I remember reading a book whilst at university suggesting that this talk of binding and loosing here was all about the remit to make rules and regulations on earth that would be reflected in heaven. But this can't be at all about making rules and regulations because the context is about Jesus gathering his church. It's about people and the images of keys. And keys open and shut things. Keys open locks. This is a picture of the work on earth that opens and shuts the way into the kingdom of heaven. And here Peter says he'll give Peter the keys of the kingdom. But it's still, it's not that Peter's going to sit around on a chair somewhere and decide who's in and out and sort of be the gatekeeper, opening and locking the door. Because remember, this still follows on from Peter's confession. It's all about the word of truth about Jesus. So Jesus is saying to people, you've got the true word about me revealed from the Father. Now go and proclaim it, and as you do it, I will build my church. As the word goes out, it will open and shut the way to the kingdom of heaven as people accept it or reject it. When someone accepts the apostolic word, they are loosed from the gates of hell to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And when the word is rejected, there's a warning too, because to reject the word about Jesus, well, it's to refuse the keys. It's to remain bound. And the keys are not just for Peter, because the keys are the true word about Jesus. The reformer Martin Luther put it like this, the keys are the exercise of the ministry of the word, and they belong to all Christians. And so we're in St. Peter's. I was going to say, did you notice the visual aid that you have very specially here as a church family? Obviously, you've got the name. But if you go out in the courtyard, it's a little bit overgrown, but start peeling back the leaves on the, above the gate, and you'll find there's a figure, and above his head is a key. And it's Peter, with the keys to the kingdom. So maybe you need to go to the buildings team and have them cut the bush back so that every time you come into the building, you've got that reminder 
that as far as we proclaim the apostolic word about Jesus, we're holding out the keys to the kingdom. Now, reminder that when you speak to a friend or a stranger about Jesus, you're holding out the keys. When you open up a gospel over a coffee with a colleague, you're putting the keys of the kingdom on the table, maybe in Starbucks or Costa. As the Christianity Explored courses run in various firms around here, Bank of England, Accenture, BCLP, Freshfields, or a school you see use, meet and open the Bible, the keys of the kingdom are held out in the office or on the classroom. If you join the city pastors team, you'll have the opportunity not just to give out water and practical help to people out on the, on the town in the evening, but to hold out the keys of the kingdom to workers on a Thursday night. In prisons, I'm told that carriers of keys need to make sure that they are always hidden to prevent a skilled inmate from seeing the marks and making a copy. Well, when our prison teams go in to lead services and Bible studies, they want to show their keys to as many inmates as they can. And we regularly encourage anyone looking in on the Christian faith here on a Sunday morning, well, to read a gospel account, something like this, Matthew's Gospel, because it's an apostolic, authoritative witness to Jesus. It's the keys to the kingdom. Will you open it? Read it. Take the keys. Respond to Jesus' call to repent. Because as the word of truth about Jesus is proclaimed, Jesus will build his church. There's no other way he does it. Across the world, as Jesus' disciples proclaim the truth about him, he is building his church. In fact, I had a fascinating opportunity to meet with some Danish pastors a few weeks back. They were visiting London. They came to St. Helens. They wanted to talk to someone about what we do. I was there. And they were asking, well, what are you seeking to do to grow the church? And it was a great opportunity just to be able to encourage them. Stay confident in the word of truth about Jesus. See, that's the conviction that Jesus wants us to have. And the task of the disciples, the same in the 21st century as it was in the first century. We want to hold out the word about Jesus. So what are the prospects of the church in 2023? Well, Jesus wants to be confident. The prospects for his church are rock solid. And as he builds it, the task all of us has as his disciples, well, it never changes. Keep holding out the keys. Because Jesus is the Christ. And the word is established. And on it, he'll build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And thank you that your word about your Son, which looses sinners from the gates of hell, is established and secure in the apostolic witness. And we thank you, Father, that as that goes out, the Lord Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we ask that we would keep holding out the keys to the kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.